0: Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. Good to see those of you that uh, weathered the weather. Again, I want to thank you all for uh, for coming and uh, Pastor Andrew and the whole team here for allowing me to do this. This is fun stuff. I, I don't always get to go to a lot of places that I can just kind of... Uh, Unload some of this stuff. Uh, Even though now people are reading it all around the country, I get literally emails every day uh, from people, and uh, it's always encouraging. Uh, I've had a few ugly ones, but that's normal too. People calling me an apostate and a heretic and and everything else. I was like, okay, all right. So, uh, even though in the New Testament, the only people they ever called uh, heresy was those who did not believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Uh, that's actually the only New Testament heresy. Do y'all realize that? I mean, the only thing actually really called heresy in the Bible, because if you didn't believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, there's no reason to be a Christian. I mean, the incarnation is actually, uh, to me, uh, if there is uh, a few beliefs that are uh, immovable, uh, that is one of them. Uh, that to me is a non-negotiable right there. Uh, cause you can be responsible just go and be a Muslim or go do whatever else you want to do. Uh, Jesus, uh, was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So, Well, so we can get through this today. Let's go ahead and jump into myth number 30. Myth number 30, it says the disciples were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Now, man, if if you were raised like me, I mean, still to this day, even preachers that I know that I'm good friends with, in the middle of a sermon, they'll get preaching and they'll still say this, even though they don't even necessarily believe it because we've sat and we've had discussions about it. Uh, but there's whole ministries called upper room ministries. I mean, you know, I grew up singing, hearing the song, you know, they were in an upper chamber. They were all in one accord. Anybody hear that song? I know when the Holy Ghost descended. Uh, and, and it's just, oh, Lord, send the power just now. And that was just an old hymn we used to sing. And the whole focus was this whole idea that on the day of Pentecost, they were in uh, the upper room when the Holy Spirit manifested now uh, a few problems with that and let me poke a few holes in it uh, I personally believe that they were not in the upper room according to Acts 1 upper room they may have been in a chamber of the temple because around the temple courts there was all kinds of rooms that was that was the, there was pools so that they could be baptized because just for a little logic, uh, first of all, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, and it was even worse back in the first century, their roads were like our alleys. They were very small roads. And for you to, first of all, find a upper room of a house that could fit 120 people, that was like a massive mansion back in that culture, okay? And the fact that three to 20,000 people, because when it said on the day of Pentecost, that when Peter stood up and preached, 3,000 were added to the church. They only counted the males. So that was 3,000 men. It didn't account for the children and wives that actually heard the gospel also. I mean, So most believe that it was probably fifteen to 20,000 people that actually became a part. Now, first of all, how are all them folks going to fit in a little alley on backside of Jerusalem, and they heard some folks in an upper room sing, singing songs and then praying or speaking in an unla- unknown language? And... It just happened to be a bunch of people near an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem that heard him speaking all different languages and magnifying God in their own tongue. I mean, it's, it's sometimes, some of this stuff is so ludicrous when we actually think it out a little bit, especially since... I think, I think what messes us up is, and I think I mentioned, mentioned this the last time, but what messes us up is the chronological order is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It really would have helped us if it would have been Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, Acts. Because Luke, by the Holy Spirit, is also the author of the book of Acts. And you get to the last two verses in the book of Acts, and it says that uh, the, the, the disciples went daily to the temple blessing and praising God continually, making melody in their hearts. So their, their practice was every morning to get up and go to the temple to pray and to worship. And as devout Jews, during the Feast of Shavuot, during the Feast of Pentecost, they would have no doubt been one of the first ones there. And it makes sense that, that God in the Old Testament said he would come suddenly to his temple. We know his temple is now us, but it would make sense that he would come to the temple in the temple. And you had Jews, literally hundreds of thousands from all over the known world at that time that spoke all kinds of different languages that all came to worship in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. And it would make sense then that all those thousands that were there worshiping, because the temple courts were massive, it was huge, especially on on, on the outside, the outer courts and everything is it would make sense that they would have heard people in the temple because there was all kinds of chambers and rooms and, 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 you know, like porches and everything else. It made sense that they heard them magnifying God in their own language, and it wasn't in the backside of Jerusalem. Not only that, but it only tells us in Acts chapter 1 that the 12, uh, that the, actually the 11 apostles, the upper room was where they were dwelling. In other words, it's where they were sleeping, and it's actually, <coughs> excuse me, the same word that was used uh, when it's uh, when it's when it's talking about just a upper abode or a room, uh, or you know, just like uh, uh, in one of the earlier myths when it said that. Uh, uh, Joseph and Mary. There was no room for them in the end. It's actually the exact same Greek word uh, dealing with a guest chamber. So this was a guest chamber that they visited quite often, and it was a place where the 11 or the 12 and maybe Mary and someone else, it was where they were staying. It's not where Pentecost actually happened or manifest. Right? Now, does, that, does that make sense to anybody at all? all right, I mean, do, do you realize that for nearly 20,000 people, to hear them speaking in an unknown tongue, uh, it, it would have had to been a, a not only a wider than normal street, but it would have been a good half mile or more down the road, and they, they would have needed a sound system or some megaphones or something. But in the temple courts, whole different ballgame. Uh, so anyway, is is there any questions about that? Uh, when when I when I first put it on Facebook, I had Lord, I had a few people come on and and just. Just ream me good. They're like, you know, you're reinterpreting the Bible. And, you know, they just started going after me on this. And then when I, uh, I didn't know who they were, so I, I clicked on their name and went to their page and it said pastor of Upper Room Ministries. And I was like, uh, I said, that's why he's ticked off. Anyway, I just, I just, I just, pretty, pretty, I just, pretty, pretty. now there's still nothing wrong with having an Upper Room Ministry. It's just for heaven's sakes, man. Okay. The, don't, don't say that's where the Holy Spirit Descended, manifested, or, or whatever. But those are things, again, that just gets passed down through the years and things that we hear, well, you know, in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, I mean, we just hear stuff like that. And a lot of times we're not really taking the time to even just really study it through or walk it through. So, uh, anyway, any any question about that one at all? Or statement? Or anything? All right. Let's, uh, let's move. Yeah. <laughs> you were going to. You were, you were getting ready to start one of those, weren't you? <laughs> uh, upper room, or, or, or at least uh, upper room healing room ministry. <laughs> All right, num- number 36. Uh, this is a good one. Females are not allowed to speak, teach, or minister in a church gathering. Because, uh, you know, according to the Apostle Paul, women are to be silent. In the church now, I, I, I want you. I want you just. I want you to think about this one literally. All right. If women are to be silent in the church, that means you can't greet anybody, you can't sing. Uh, you know, and, and it cracks me up how there's whole denominations that will say they can't preach and they can't teach, but they'll let them on the platform to sing and lead in worship and they can teach in Sunday school. And it, it's just silly. And, and when you understand the culture of that day, I, I think to me it's, it's solved in something very easy. Uh, when, when Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he said, I suffer not a woman to teach. Actually, the phrase woman is the Greek word, gune. And most of the time, over 98% of the time, when that word is translated, it's translated wife. It's actually not translated female because he starts talking there about Adam and Eve, and he starts talking about childbearing. Now, childbearing wouldn't just be for a female. Uh, in that culture, it would be for a married female. And And literally what it's talking about is this. I suffer not a wife to teach who's usurping authority over her husband. I mean, literally what Paul is saying is, uh, you know what? If there's women, and that's where you get to Corinthians, and Paul said, listen, tell the women to be silent in the church because during their corporate gatherings, the women at that, in that culture had to sit at the very back, and the men were up front. And when someone would be up teaching, a wife sitting in the back would shout from the back up to her husband, what does he mean by that? I mean, that that was literally going on. And Paul's like, listen, man, tell them to be silent in the church. And if they have a question, let them ask their husband who's at home. In other words, stop interrupting the meeting by screaming from the back. And then when you understand that Corinth uh, worshipped a goddess... And it was a big deal when it came to just this whole uh, this whole thing. I mean, I mean, we we freak out today if there's a radical feminist. Let me tell you, Corinth was just like full of radical feminists to say the least. And listen, God is absolutely pro female because in Christ there's neither male nor female. I've had preachers try to argue this with me, and they're like, they're like, well, God's not going to give authority to woman. I said, the only, the only being on the planet that God gave authority to was a woman. That's why the church is never called his husband. It's called his wife. You know the church is only female gendered? In other words, the on, the only authority God gave authority to on the planet was a woman. It was his bride. It was his wife. He chose So anyway, hallelujah. <laughs> So that right there, I mean it just again, in the anointing in the anointed one in Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. That that it's not it's not about that. That's normally a hang up. And I always tell people this, I said, if you if you're in a ministry that's stuck Still in in a ironic mindset, which the ironic priesthood was from fathers to sons. That's where when the new covenant showed up. Uh, do, do, you, do you realize that when the apostle Paul writes a letter to Timothy and he said, I, I, "I see this unfeigned, unhypocritical faith that I first saw in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I now see in you." Uh, that was the first time in anywhere in Scripture that it was. It was female towards a male. Matter of fact, nearly all the other times, you see he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was always male because it was an Aaronic priesthood and mentality. But now we're in a Melchizedek priesthood, which is a new covenant, and God says it's neither male nor female, and guess what? Mama can impart to you too. Mama's got some good stuff to say. Matter of fact, Mama gives you an unfeigned faith. It's actually translated unhypocritical faith. Because sometimes you know, daddy, daddies will fake it till they make it. They got the face on, honey, just look good. But but mama, mama don't know how to do that. I mean, just because you know, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Uh, I mean, mama, man, when it comes to being hypocritical, they're like, uh, 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 just, just. It's just going to be clear and plain. And Mama ain't having a good day. You couldn't know Mama ain't having a good day. That, that, I mean, that's just part. Of, women tend to be a lot less unhypocritical, where men at times tend to put up more of the walls and borders. But Paul then goes on to say to Timothy, "But God's not giving you a spirit of intimidation, but power, love, and self discipline, or soundness of mind." Remember when I put my hands on you? In other words, he was mothered, but he was never fathered, and so he had an un—he had a, he had an unhypocritical of. Faith that believed, but he struggled with intimidation because mamas don't remove intimidation, daddies do. Uh, the encouragement of a father empowers a, ch- a child. Discouragement of a father cripples a child. And so uh, that, that that's, that's where, it doesn't mean mama can't speak positive things, but come on, let's be honest. When your mama told you, oh, you're so wonderful, I believe in you, you're so amazing, you're like, yeah, 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 I know, mom, you got to say that. But the moment dad said, son, I'm proud of you, all of a sudden, I mean, my, my, my son, I used to watch it with him all the time. I mean, he'd say something, he'd look at me, and he'd go, right, Dad? And there's sometimes I'd be like, no, you know, you know that, that's not right, son. But I mean, the, he would always look for my approval. He already knew Mama was going to give it, because that's just, I mean, that's Mom. Moms men are made for that. I mean, Mom will go to your incarceration. Yes. All right, you know, Mom, Mom will show up. If you're about to go to jail, Mom's going to show up. I still love you, baby. I believe you. That's what moms do. All right, just You can't help it. But there's, some, there's something about that fathering heart and that fathering spirit that says, you know what? Remember when I put my hands on you because I removed the intimidation off of your life because you were mothered, but you were never fathered. Now, a father stepped into your life and encouraged something. highly. So that's all fun stuff. So let me just say this. Uh, females are allowed to not only speak, they're allowed to preach, they're allowed to prophesy, because we have all through the New Testament where they prophesied. And do you know that the first apostle of the resurrection was a woman? Now, the first sent one, that's what the word apostle means. Well, it was a woman. It was a woman that showed up at the tomb, and Jesus sent her to go tell everybody else the good news. And so ladies should not feel any less than on any level. Jesus was probably one of the greatest leaders of all time when it came to empowering women. Uh, big time. And Christianity was supposed to empower women and not beat them down. It's the people who took a bunch of scriptures out of context and jacked a bunch of stuff up. All right, now, uh, number, uh, myth number 37. First of all, any questions with that at all? All right. Myth number 37. The Bible was authored and written by God alone. Now, this one actually amazes me how many people believe this. I mean, they literally believe that God literally wrote the Bible. The Bible doesn't even claim that. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit moved on men. All right. That the, the, the scripture in in 2 in Timothy actually says that the scriptures were were breathed on by God. In other words, God breathed on men or men felt an inspiration and they wrote. Uh, and that that is how the scriptures came into being. Now there's a whole nother discussion on how they got canonized and what got left out. And, and, you know, I mean, like, I'm not sure if I'll get to that one, but, uh, you know, I was always taught that the Bible has always been 66 books. I mean, y'all, I mean, y'all have heard that. Uh, the, the truth is the original Canon was 80 books, uh, but, uh, 500 to 1,000 years later, the Orthodox Church broke off. They went to 73 books. And then even even, even the Protestant Church, I, I always heard, well, the 80 books, that's Catholic. And we're Protestants, and we're the 66 books. You know that the the 1611 King James Version was 80 books until 1882? Uh, it actually just went down to 66 books in the last 130, 140 years. And that was mainly a bunch of evangelical... Uh, Bible-thumping fundamentalist, good Baptist folk, uh, anyway, from up in Chicago uh, that actually made that, whole, that made that whole shift. Even the Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, most of the Reformers, their main Bible, their go-to Bible was called the Geneva Bible, and the Geneva Bible is 80 books. And so, uh, uh, again, a lot of, our, a lot of our, our, our fight and struggle and issue with some of this stuff is like a 20th and 21st century problem. Because nobody argued about this stuff really hardly at all up until about the last 130 or 140 years because up until the, eight, the mid-1800s, there was not even an edu- there was not a education system for people on the planet. That normally by the time you were you know, eight years old, you're working in the fields or you're working in a factory. You talk about child labor laws. Um, that 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 was actually the norm. That was that was back then, and all the way up until the 1890s, almost during the Victorian period, uh, that it was like 90 to 95 percent of the known world were illiterate. People couldn't read. So even if you put a Bible in their hand. You know, I mean, they they wouldn't have even known how to read it. They wouldn't have known how to understand it. And up until the Wittenberg Press in the late 1500s, the Bibles were all in Latin, and and the only person that could read it was the priest in town. And even then, do you know that the preacher couldn't take the Bible like home with them to study it? It was actually locked in the rectory or in the, in the in 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 chains, and they had to stand there at time for hours and flip through it because the only people that had actual Bibles themselves were either people that were extremely educated, extremely rich, or or they were a priest or, or they were a pastor. So nowadays, I mean, we've got 50, you know, we've got 50 different versions on our phone. Now, man, we're blessed today. All right. I mean, thank God for that. You know, but people, people tend at times to take, to take the Bible and end up making it, making it an idol. And then they they think, well, because God wrote it. And it's like, no, no, God didn't. And the Bible is not one book. And I don't think I'm going to get to this one, but uh, I'll just mention it. You know, I mean, I've heard my whole life. You get to the end of the book, Revelation, and it says anyone that takes away from this book or adds to this book, they will be accursed. And then we think that's talking about the whole Bible. The Bible is not a book. It's 66 to 80 different books, depending on your belief system and what you choose to embrace. And that passage is only talking about the book of Revelation. It's not talking about the whole Bible, okay? And so people, and, and what cracks me up is the people that will fight you on that. Well, the Bible says don't take away from it. You're trying to take away from the Bible. And I'm like, well, you know, what, 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 what version of the Bible do you study? How many, ver- you know, how many books? Well, 66 books. So you already kicked out 14. Y'all didn't want to help me with that one, did y'all? It's like, you already got rid of 14. And so, you know, it's amazing how we'll like, we'll like bust on somebody for something. And it's like, wait a minute, you already did the exact same thing because if you study a little bit of church history, you'll find out where a lot of this comes from. And I, I just encourage you, it's actually very interesting to find out like the canonization process and how they labored. I mean, I mean, the, 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 the Bible that we understand today was widely accepted by around the year 200 or so, but it was not fully what is called canonized, which means it was bishops and theologians and teachers and pastors. that gathered together for months on end and by about 394 AD is when they finally said, okay, uh, now we're going to call this uh, this thing and now it's settled. But e- even though it had been agreed on almost 200 years before, 400 and uh, almost 200 years before. And so there's a whole process uh, to this that's just extremely interesting. Uh, but just know that it was not written by God. It was written by men who God inspired and encouraged and breathed on. And guess what? Some of the men also put their own stuff in there. I mean, how do we know that? Because Paul said, "I'm saying this by permission." I mean, Paul Paul's got almost a whole whole chapter in one of his books where he's like, "Hey, listen, you know, I'm just gonna. This is my opinion." All right. And the beautiful thing is, God let him put it in there, you know. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think Paul knew at all that he was writing scripture. I think Paul would be. I think Paul would have been horrified if he'd have found out that <laughs> that we were actually calling his letters to specific churches. Anyway. Uh, scripture today, even though I don't think there's anything wrong with it, uh, I just don't think that was ever the original desire or meaning of it. And so, there, there's just a lot of things. Um, you know, Pastor Andrew and I—we've talked about this uh, quite a bit. Uh, much of much of the American church, uh, many times, are more biblians than they are Christians, because uh, they'll they'll actually tell you, "Well, I follow the Bible." I always tell people, "What's Well, I, I follow God, because there's a whole bunch of stuff in the Bible I don't follow. Because there's a whole bunch of it that ain't. A, doesn't apply to me on any level. It wasn't written to me. That's a good place for an amen. All right, listen, I'm, I'm, if my child mouths off to me, I'm not taking him outside and stoning them. I'm sorry, ain't doing it, okay? The Bible says, so. I follow the Bible. It's like, really? The whole Bible? So, you know, the maps, the table of contents, the Again, there's just some of this stuff we don't absolutely, completely. Uh, Listen, the Bible contains the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. It doesn't say in the beginning was the Bible. It says in the beginning was the Logos, the logic and reasoning of God. Uh, Jesus is the word of God. And I've heard people say that the living word, Jesus, never contradicted the written word. And that's just absolutely not true. A whole sermon on the Mount is a contradiction to the written word. You've heard said, but I say. All right. In other words, Moses told you an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If someone hits you, knock them out, man. The law gives you permission to punch them right in the face. Jesus shows up, and he's like, but I say, uh, no, love your enemies. Bless, so despitefully use you. That, that's not a reinterpretation. That is the polar opposite view. In other words, what Jesus was saying is Moses said that. Daddy and I didn't. That'll mess with you just a little bit right there. That freaks us out because we were taught that the Bible is the fourth person of the Godhead. Uh, You know, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Holy Bible. Even though up until the 1880s, most people couldn't even read it. And so, you know, I I guess God was okay for the first almost 1900 years just sending all them poor ignorant souls to fry for all of eternity because, you know, you couldn't read to figure it out anyway. i well, think about that just for a minute. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't, it not only does it not make any sense, it's literally ludicrous. I mean, it would, it would, anyway, hallelujah. Lord have mercy. I mean, can you imagine God, I mean, you stand before God and say, man, uh, I didn't know I couldn't read. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, that's justice. Anyway, that, the, the punishment fits the crime. You were dumb. You never had a teacher teach you how to read. Sorry, dude. Anyway. You <laughs> go fry. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I just I'm just glad that God that Jesus is the judge and not us. I'm glad that he gets to make these decisions and not us. I'm 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 glad, and I mentioned this I think the first week. I'm glad that there's at least some scripture in the Bible. Uh, there's no scripture that says your last breath is your last chance. Did you know that? you know that there, nowhere in the Bible does it say your last breath is your last opportunity to hear the gospel and believe? But there's actually scripture that says when Jesus uh, Jesus died, he went into the grave, went into Sheol, went into Hades, went into hell, and he preached to the wicked. The gospel. That means they had a chance post-mortem to hear the good news. Woo! Thank God for that. Now, am I going to make that a doctrine? No, because I don't know. All I do know is there's scripture for it. There's no scripture for the other. So I'm just going to hope that some of your family... Listen, you know how many people I run into, and they didn't receive Jesus until they were 60 years old, and their mom and dad were already dead, and after they received Jesus and heard some of this, they start freaking out because they're thinking, my mom and dad never accepted Jesus, man. They're just frying right now, and I mean, it terrifies people. It terrifies people, Uh, rather than realize, hey, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they have an opportunity to stand before all-encompassing love and believe, but... I also leave room in my theology for people to flip them off. Come on and, and say, forget you. We don't know. That's, that's, that's the beauty of all this is certainty. Do you know that I'm convinced certainty is a sin. We get so consumed and we have to be certain about everything. Well, then there's no faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. You know what that means? We're all walking around in the dark, bumping into stuff. Come on, think about it. We, our whole life of faith is a walk in the dark because you walk by faith, not by sight. We're, we're we're heading towards the light, but a lot of times we're, I, I, I think it's uh, in Acts 17 in the King James uh, on Mars Hill. It actually says that Paul stood up and he started preaching and he said that men feel after God. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a phrase that jumped out at me years ago. Men that feel after God. In other words, you're just, you're walking along and you're, you're 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 feeling after God it's like you bump into something okay I'm not supposed to go that way and then you go this way and it's part of a walk of faith is it's not an issue of being certain about stuff it's an issue of allowing God to constantly lead you and direct you anyway hallelujah you? take you where you need to be and uh, if if we have it all figured out we're him and if we're him then there's no reason for us to need him that's why I'm I'm the older I, I'm getting, I'm I'm okay with mystery. Uh, when I was younger, there was no mystery. Bless God, the Holy Spirit shows you things to come. There's no mystery. God wants to reveal it to you. You're just lazy. You don't want to figure it out. You don't you don't want to study it. And then the older you get and you're like, man, there's a lot of things that are a mystery to me. I have I've had I've had friends who love Jesus with all their heart called to ministry, all of a sudden just die out of the blue in a car accident couldn't see any purpose in it or have a friend who who you know their their child is born with down syndrome and i, I you know i i mean we, we there's stuff that happens in life man i don't know you know i mean it, it's easy it, the old clichés of well there was sin or there's a curse it just don't do it no more i'm sorry you know there's some things we just don't know and we just have to trust we just have to trust uh myth number 38 This is a little bit of a loaded one. There is a world leader who is called the Antichrist in the Bible. Uh, Many of us have heard this either in church, a sci-fi movie, a horror flick, or a book that we read. The Antichrist is coming, or like many of us have been told, he's been alive for the last 60 years at least, and any minute it's about to jump on the scene. And he was—he was, he was and end time. Teachers have called the antichrist everyone from Hitler to Mussolini to Saddam Hussein to President Reagan, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Chelsea's mama, <laughs> <laughs> as well as some Spanish prince in Europe. And now all the craze is that it's Islam and some leader who will rise from that religion. And many teachers have taken scriptures from Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, and Second Thessalonians to prove the coming of an antichrist person. And it isn't found at all in the book of Revelation. The only time the phrase Antichrist is found in Scripture is in John's epistles. Did you all know that? The only time the phrase. first John 2, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, that Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrist have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but were not really us. For Had they been with us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. But you have an an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know I've written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And in the original Greek language, uh, this word, the, is a definite article, and it's not found in the original text. It's literally just translated, Antichrist. The only other time is Second John 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and Antichrist, that actually nowhere in the scriptures is an individual called the Antichrist. And anytime someone wants to argue that with me, I'm, I'm like, listen, just go do a little word study. Try, just look up the phrase antichrist and then go, to, you can go to Bible Hub. That's why I encourage people to go to BibleHub.com. Super easy. The word Bible, H U B, dot com. Put in those verses, click Greek. And you'll see right there, it'll line it all right up, what words are actually in the original text and ones that actually aren't. I mean, it's a pretty easy way to even study and look that up. There is not anyone called the Antichrist, period. Now, the man of sin that Second Thessalonians talks about that sets himself up as God in the temple. The Greek word there for temple is naos. And Naos is not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. It's only talking about your physical body. No, you're not. No, you're not that you are the temple. Uh, the, the man of sin is an old mindset, an old way of thinking, but historically, uh, many also believe that the man that set himself up as God in the temple was a man by the name of John Levi, who he claimed to be the Christ. And he's the one that started the whole rebellion of the war that lasted from 67 to 70 AD. And it was he that actually encouraged all the priesthood and the Jews to actually set the fire to the temple. It wasn't the Romans that actually set the fire to the temple. It was actually a man by the name of John Levi. This is recorded Historically. Okay? And so it, it, it's amazing how we've just heard things. We're like that this this Antichrist that's coming and everybody's afraid of the Antichrist. Everybody's afraid of the Mark of the Beast and the 666. Man, I, I, I remember here a few years ago the, the, the first time there was like some company in Switzerland, that started putting the computer chips in people's wrists so they could go in, check in and out of work. And now a lot of, a lot of people in Europe, it, it's the next technology. The next technology is rather than you having to carry a credit card or just stuff, because we already got computer chips that, that we carry with us uh, in our wrist and our head. Because you realize that it doesn't say in your wrist and in your head. It says on the wrist and on the head. And actually, when you, when you actually realize in the first century what that was talking about, the mark of the beast was Nero, and you could not buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And there was a place called the Agora. The Agora was the marketplace in every Roman city, and it was guarded by Romans. And there was only one way in. And the only way you could go into the Agora to buy or sell is you had to stop at a statue of Nero where they would be offering incense and you'd have to reach up and take some ashes off of the altar that was worshiping Nero and make a mark on your head or a mark on your wrist so you could go into the Agora to buy or sell. All right. This doesn't have anything to do with the computer chip. It doesn't have anything to do with the tattoo because the truth is, according to the book of Revelation chapter 3, you and I, uh, or Revelation 2, we have the mark of God on our forehead. Matter of fact, do you know that a mark on the wrist and the forehead had more to do with Passover than it actually did a mark of the beast? Do you know that actually when they went to Passover, they actually put mark. They actually put blood on the wrist. They put blood on their forehead. That that all through all through the Passover, there's all this stuff about wrist and forehead like crazy. That's actually positive stuff. And 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 let's just uh, anyway. I'm just going to go on ahead and go here. Might as well mess with you. Uh, if, if, if we believe that a computer chip, if it's the whole world that will not be able to buy or sell unless you have a computer chip, 60% of the known world does not have electricity and running water. 60%. This is a first world problem. Okay. And who's going to go to Peru up in the Andes Mountains where there have been tribes who've been trading squash for 4,000 years? and try to explain to them who don't know what electricity is try to explain to them that before they can trade squash you're going to cut their wrist or their forehead and insert something into it listen you're going to have some spears and arrows flying at you all right and who's going to run all the wiring all the way up to those places listen some of this some of this it's it's just it's we've been watching too much of the sci-fi channel it's, it's, it's science fiction, man. Listen, matter of fact, I mean, I put on Facebook when they put out the computer chip, I said, I'll be one of the first in, well, I'll be the second in line because first generation stuff messes up. So I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not, <laughs> I don't, I don't buy anything first generation because normally they perfected it by at least the second or the third. So I'll maybe wait a few months. And when you, when the second generation comes out, listen, man, if a computer chip sitting in my wrist is going to get me through the airport quicker, I'm all in. I'm not afraid of technology. It's the next technology, whether you like it or not. Thirty years from now, nobody's going to be fighting and arguing about this, not even discussing it, because there were people thirty years ago that actually said actually said credit cards were the mark of the beast. Thirty years before that, it was it, it was actually social security numbers. You that oh, it's numbers. That's the mark of the beast. You're taking a number for it. I mean, just all this. It's it's so silly, and it's just conspiracy theories. All right. I mean, we we if we would just use a little bit of logic. And we'd actually think this stuff through all the way to the end. It just doesn't work all over the world. And especially when you understand that in the first century, John was writing to people that knew exactly what he was talking about. Nero was called the beast by everybody. And the number of his name totaled in, in Greek, 666. In Latin, 616. 616. Uh, and that's why some translations actually uh, say the number of the beast is 616. So, you know, that was a, a Grand Rapids area code. Uh, but anyway, uh, everybody living on the western side of the state is it's Antichrist. But, it's, it's, but, but regardless, either 616 or 666 actually still added up to Nero, okay? I mean, he was literally called by his own people a beast. I mean, I mean he killed his own family. I mean, I mean, the guy was like horrible dude. I mean, he was pitiful. But John was writing a letter from a Roman jail on the Isle of Patmos, and he had to veil it in all kinds of language because they would read it before they would let the letter go out to anybody. And so he used all this apocalyptic language that Jews would understand, but you and I wouldn't. That's why if you try to literalize it, I I have people all the time that, that fight me. The book of Revelation is literal. I'm like, really? So Godzilla's coming out of the ocean someday? I mean, that's literally the beast came out of the sea <laughs> or, 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 or the beast that came out of the earth. I mean, man, there's going to be an earthquake and all of a sudden there's, you know, there's, there's Hydra down there or, or, you know, what's one of the ones that fought Godzilla Madra or anyway. Yeah. You know, all, all those, all those, I mean, again, it's, 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 the sci-fi channel. And then, and then you got the guys, uh, that written whole books, uh, that actually said that there is a whole. there's tribes of Nephilim giants over in the Middle East that are underground and in the last days they're going to come out and I remember I sat in a whole service one day listening to that garbage and I, had to sit I, was ready, I was ready to leave and then the pastor grabs me and says, we want you to eat with us in the back room afterwards. And I'm sitting at the table with a well-known prophet that wrote a book on it and taught it and I wasn't gonna say nothing. I'm just gonna behave myself. I ain't getting into it. I'm just gonna eat and run. And the pastor looks at me and says, Jamie, what do you think? And I'm like, I'd rather not say anything. And finally they're like, no, we really wanna know what you think. I said, well, I'm just curious. Why, why would we care? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, if there's, been a whole, if there's been thousands of giants living underground for thousands of years, and they come out, so what? They'll be blind as a bat. Would just shoot them? <laughs> I mean, if all of a sudden they come out in the light, then they could have seen Jack, man. They've been living underground. But, but you see, that, that's like too logical. No, you know, it's like, wait, don't actually use your brain when you're talking to Christians. All right, I mean, it's like for heaven's sakes, man. It's 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 all it's a myth. I mean, it's a bunch of baloney. And you don't think they would have been found by now? I, I mean, I mean, listen, we have satellites now that, that can look hundreds of feet underground, man. I mean, I mean, it just blow. It, anyway, it it's just silliness. And uh, but but just know this: there is nobody called the. Antichrist you don't have to be afraid of the Antichrist in the future because there wasn't even one back then there's the spirit of Antichrist anything that is antichristos anti the anointing antichrist that it's the spirit of Antichrist and he said that is now in the world he said it was there already so if he was if the Antichrist is a person and he was there in John's day that sucker been walking around for a couple thousand years. He's the Highlander. There can be only one. Or he's Dracula 2000. I don't know if you remember seeing, you know, Dracula 2000. That that That's what made Gerard Butler famous. And and by the time he got to the end of the movie, it actually showed that he was Judas. It was very interesting. I actually, that was actually one of them I actually kind of enjoyed just because of that twist. I was like, wait a minute, he hates silver, uh, crosses, and, and it, like he was cursed by God to never die. You know, so anyway, that was interesting. But, uh Antichrist is not Dracula. All right. He's not a lichen. (laughs) He's not a werewolf. Okay. (laughs) And he's not a vampire. (sighs) And he's not even a he or an it. All right. I already did number 40 last week. Any questions with that? Are you sure? (laughs) See, listen, sometimes I... And I have to be careful at times because my, my A personality gets facetious very easy. I mean, it's very easy for me to, you know, just make someone look real dumb. And I, and I, and I do my best to, to not do that. But when you're teaching this stuff, you almost have to make it look so ludicrous for you to be able to actually see, holy cow how did I ever think that or believe that? Because a lot of times it was never challenged. I mean, we just, a lot of times we've not sat down with someone who just said, that's, that's a load of baloney. Have you ever thought that through? And then when someone does, you're like, huh? Because again, a lot of times we just haven't. Now uh, myth 44, there is a perfect and a permissive will of God. Now, now, how how many, how many of y'all have heard that in your life? Oh, boy. Now, I was raised on that one, and uh, all you had to do was go to children's camp or youth camp, and if you went to any kind of camp as a kid in the church, they were all like some of you kids here, God wants you in his perfect will, and if you're not in his perfect will, you're in his permissive will, and there were all these wills, and the perfect will of God always was something miserable. You know, he was going to make you go to Africa and live with pygmies. You know, I mean, it was he was he was he was never going to actually allow you to do something you enjoyed. He was always going to force you to do something you just hated. Because if you really submit to God. It's never going to be enjoyable. It's normally going to be a drag. And I mean, I remember, man, that's why I ran from the will of God. I ran from the will of God for six years, man, from 13 to almost 20 years old. I didn't want nothing to do with it because I was convinced. You know what? He It wasn't good plans he has for me, even though he says, I know the plans I have for you. They're good thoughts, good plans to give you hope. No, no, no. There was no good plans. His will was not good, even though that's what. Paul said, good, acceptable, and perfect. But but no, it was there's the perfect will, and that's when you're following exactly the will of God. You're obeying everything he said to do. And let me just say there ain't nobody outside of Jesus that ever did that. Nobody obeys, nobody has obeyed God completely and done everything he asked them to do 24 7. That was a really good place for an Amen. All right, listen, Jesus did. Nobody else has. I I, I guarantee it. It's just not going to happen. There is no plan B with God. We get it mainly from Romans 12, verse 2. Verse 1, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or common sense service. Then he says, be not conformed to this age. See, that, that, that That right there throws a monkey in it. Right it was mistranslated as the word world. It's the Greek word eon Don't be conformed to this age. You know I heard whole sermons, don't be conformed to this world. That means you don't dress like them, you don't sing what they sing, you don't look like them, you don't go to movies, you don't you don't be conformed to this world system. No, no he Paul was saying, don't be conformed to the age of law. <laughs> don't be conformed to the age that you guys were born into, but be transformed, by the renewing of your mind so that you might know and prove what is the good, the acceptable, and the mature will of God. The word perfect there is just simply mature. The truth is it's one will in three dimensions. Because you know what? If, if cancer all of a sudden hits your body and you get a bad report from the doctor, first thing you need to know is God's will towards me is still good then I need to accept that his will is good no matter what's going on in my life. And then I accept that he's going to perfect in me whatever he's going to perfect in me as I walk through the process to my healing. That's why the will of God is good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. That's, that's also childhood, adolescence, and maturity. How many of the first thing you need to teach a child or a new believer is God's good? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves little children all the children of the world. You're out in yellow, black, and white, they're all precious in his sight. That's what you want to teach a little child. God is good. He's a good God. But then they become teenagers, adolescents, and they start to question everything their parents taught them was good. And then as a teenager or adolescent, you have to accept that what your parents taught you was good is actually good for you and smart for you to do. And then as you grow and mature, God perfects or matures his will in your life. Matter of fact, I I, I write down in this one, there's only, I think, four or five things in the Bible that actually says this is the will of God. And everything give thanks for this is the will of God In Christ Jesus concerning you, both in Thessalonians and Paul and Corinthians, says it is the will of God for you to abstain from sexual immorality. There's only a few things that he actually says this is the will of God. But uh, when I was growing up, will of God was always some super mystical, something floating around that we had to try to find. And hopefully a prophet would come around and call me out in a service and tell me, the will of God for my life. Even though Paul said, if you want to understand the will of God, start doing some reasonable service. He says, start getting involved. Be reasonable, man. Common sense. Start doing some common sense service in the kingdom and watch the will of God unfold because you're in his will on the way to his ultimate will. Right now, it's the will of God for me to be here today, but this isn't the ultimate will for my my life. I'm in his will on the way to his ultimate will. That's why we need to trust that right now I'm in the will of God because I love him, he loves me, and I'm called according to his purpose. Because I'm called according to his purpose, I'm right now in his will, and he's perfecting it in me as I grow, increase, and mature. And I don't have to freak out all the time about missing it. And I I remember my wife, my, my wife was engaged twice before her and I got married. And when you're raised in the Pentecostal world and you're told there's only one person for you. Only one, even though right now, I think women outnumber men like four or five to one. So that means some women, I guess are gonna have to get together with other women, but I mean, think that one through. All right, if there's only one man for one woman, right now there's three times as many women. I mean, I don't know how you do the math with that one. Or we're into polygamy. Sister wives. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, that's not what God's talking about, okay? But, but when you <laughs> Y'all know I'm a mess, right? Just, you know, anyway, thank you for putting up with my humor. Listen, if, if there is only one person for one person, uh, then, man, remember, my wife, she got so afraid to miss it that she could barely make a right decision at all because you're so afraid to miss the will of God that then you have a hard time making any decision at all because what if I miss it? If I miss it, my whole life could go to hell. I mean, just go right down the tubes. You know, and not, not even realize that, man, have you studied your Bible? They all missed it. <laughs> like a bunch of times. You know, like David, a man after God's own heart, that dude screwed up on the will of God on a regular basis. But But, yeah, but guess what? It didn't stop God's ultimate purpose and will. For manifesting his life, and thank God that he's the God of the second, the third, the fourth, the fiftieth, the hundredth, the thousandth chance. He's like, come on, man, don't let that define you. Just keep moving forward. We've all screwed up. It doesn't remove you from from the will of God. His will is growing and maturing in your life. Anyway, I hope that helps somebody. All right. So now, myth number forty-eight. When one sinner repents or get saved, all the angels in heaven rejoice. How many many of y'all have heard that before? All the angels in heaven. I I remember we'd have evangelists in, they'd get preaching, they'd be like, uh, someone would come to the altar and receive Jesus, says, all the angels in heaven right now are having a party. The problem with that is, it's not that it may be. truth is, I don't know, I've never been there. But scripture actually says there's rejoicing in the presence of angels. Actually, it doesn't say the angels are rejoicing. Uh, Paul tells us that the angels long to look into the mysteries of salvation and redemption. They've never been lost, so they don't know what it means to be found. Uh, it doesn't mean that if they, don't see, if they see God rejoicing that they wouldn't rejoice along with them, but it's it just they're, they're servants. They just, yes, sir, they just do what they're told to do. That, that that that's why that's why you know we we, we get all these we get all these ideas uh, you know angels were not made in the image and likeness of God um, that is why my first myth uh, Lucifer is not the devil uh, because there's no way that the devil was an angel because we are not told anywhere that angels have free will. Uh, matter of fact, they weren't made in the image and likeness of God. If you, if you want Isaiah 14 uh, to mean somebody, it would make a whole lot more sense. It would be Adam because it said that he said in his heart, I will ascend and be like God. An angel could never think they could be like God. Angels were not created in the image and likeness of God. If they were in the image and likeness of God, God would have never needed to create us because he needed a family that was like him. Angels were not made to be like that. That's why angels are not married nor given in marriage. That's why angels are not having babies because they don't have reproductive organs. Sorry, I mean, that's where you can sit and get in a fight about Nephilim all day long. <laughs> the sons of God lay with the sons of women. That was the sons of Seth. That was still the the, 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 the seed that, that went forth compared to all the sons of, sons and daughters of Cain. We, 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 we get... Again, it's mythology. I mean, man, just just open up a good Greek book, read about the Titans. You're going to be like, "Woo!" I think that's in the Bible. I'm telling you, so much, so much of the things we've been taught comes from Plato and Socrates, and comes from more Greek dualism uh, than it actually does the Hebrew Scriptures. And so we we get all of these mythical ideas uh, about a lot of the stuff that's just. I mean, it's, it, it, it's just stuff that's not, not true. Now, uh, we are told this in the book of Zephaniah. The Lord, your God, in the midst of you is mighty. He will save, bring salvation. He will rejoice over you with joy. He, the Lord, will joy over you with shouting. Now, that word joy is the Hebrew word gil, which means to leap up and spin uncontrollably with great emotion. It says God does it. It lets me know that he's not just some old dude sitting on a throne with a big, long, white beard that literally there's a party going on in heaven 24-7 because someone around the world is experiencing salvation. And who's rejoicing in the presence of angels? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all of the saints that have gone on before. Now, may the angels join in with them? Maybe. I don't know, but it doesn't say that. All right, It says there's rejoicing in the presence of angels. Now, it excites me a whole lot more to know that, that the Father and the Son are doing a little jig in heaven. that they're leaping up and spinning uncontrollably. I remember back in the 90s, most of the churches my wife and I were going to, we were just doing our best to try to loose them in praise and worship because they were all still singing out of the book. And so we'd bring overheads to sing off the wall, and I'd have people come up to me and say, are we watching a movie tonight? You know, I mean, it was, it was just a fight. I mean, just to get people to actually clap their hands. I mean, it was like, you know, now it's normal to us. And then when, I, when I'd when i pull a drum set out, people's eyebrows are going. We're playing that African devil music. What do I? That was still in the '90s. So that's silly. said, so what? Those beats draw demon spirits. I'm like, well, if so, I like them better than the spirit you had. I'm just anyway, because this place was dead in a doornail before we walked in here. But but I mean, we 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 get all the, we get all these ideas about about all 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 of this all of this stuff, and we would uh, we would just begin to. Loose people in praise. And I'd get up and I'd say, how many of you here want to be like God? Everybody like, oh, yes, hallelujah. We want to be like God the Father. And I'd quote Zephaniah 3. Well, he leaps up and spins uncontrollably with great emotion. How many want to be like him now? I'd say jump about to your seat and spin with great emotion. Oh. Uh, But by the second night, man, folks are jumping up, spinning, running around the building. Woo, we can have fun in church. Yeah. we would have a whole lot of fun. That, that, that one's just a fun one. Again, that one's not going to necessarily rock anybody's theology. But again, it's something we've been taught or believed. Ooh, this is a good one. Myth number 50. Principalities and powers are demons and only speaking of demonic hierarchies. Now, I, I remember back in the 90s, I sat in a whole Saturday seminar where they broke down Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul said that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, rulers of wickedness in high places, and, and all of these other things. And they broke down, there were general demons, and colonel demons, and captain demons, and, and sergeants, and corporals, and imps, like, like the devil was really that organized, And we grew up, I grew up reading This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti and then, and then the other ones and they're like, man, all of these demon spirits that are constantly just hanging around and then they're afraid of people that are praying people. And I mean, it's fun to think about. It's like, woo, you know, Lord, just give me a little picture into that mystical world. But uh, hmm. What's interesting, though, is this. We're told by the Apostle Paul in Titus 3 verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers, to authorities, and to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. The King James Version says, be subject to principalities and powers. These phrases are the same Greek words, arche and exousia, the form and figure of speech in each context. is also found in Ephesians 1 21, that he's been set apart far above all rule and authority or principalities and powers. And power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Same thing when Paul in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, and then in heavenly places is added. Ephesians 3.10, So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities, in heavenly places. Same thing in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four, Romans eight thirty eight, as well as Colossians 1, 6. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, principalities and powers. All things were created through him and for him. So God created the principalities and powers. So is he talking about demon forces here? Anyway, these few passages are not all talking about demonic authorities, but also human ones that rule the systems of this world. We're told in 1 Corinthians 2.8, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood, for had they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The same word, principality and power. Now watch this. Demon spirits knew who Jesus was. Jesus we know, Paul we know, who are you? When Jesus would walk up to someone demonized, they would say, son of man or son of God, have you come to torment us before our time? They knew exactly who Jesus was. So the principalities and powers that crucified the Lord obviously were not demons because they knew who he was. And these principalities and powers, it actually says that if they would have known who he was, they wouldn't have crucified him. So who's this talking about? Do do, do you know that principalities and powers are are still uh, functional today? Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. That was dealing with the whole law system. Uh, But all you got to do is drive downtown to any city and you pull up to the city building and it's called a principality. Literally to this day, called a principality. The principalities and powers that crucified the Lord were not demons. It was Caiaphas, which was the religious ruling thought patterns. It was also on top of it, uh, it was uh, uh, Herod, which was the economic system of that day. And then you had Rome and you had Pilate, which was the political system of that day. Principalities and powers are thought patterns. That, that is why Paul said, uh, Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of imaginations, image nations, image nations, any nations that are producing an image, image nations, nations, rulers and squatters, imaginations, condemnations, denominations. I mean, you know, any nation that is a ruling thought pattern in our brains. And he said, and we take every thought captive. So the principi- the, the whole idea of this was ruling thought patterns. Now, does that mean that these ruling uh, uh, entities cannot be demonically influenced? Of course they can. Absolutely. Our, our, I'm not saying that there's not any kind of demon powers either. Uh, but Ephesians 6 is not talking about general demons, colonel demons. You can say amen or oh me. All right, l- l- listen, sometimes we've gotten so demon conscious because because we think how you defeat the darkness is you scream at it. You defeat darkness by just sen- simply turning on the light. Just turn on the light, man. You want to get rid of the darkness? You don't scream at darkness. You just turn on the light. The light <laughs> deals with darkness. And and I, I'm convinced that a lot of the church continues to re-empower disempowered spirits by acknowledging them. That's why Paul said we give no place to the devil. He said, we're not ignorant of the devil's devices. Noamata is the Greek word, which is translated mind games. Uh, that's, all, that's all he's got is mind games. Principalities and powers are not near the stuff that we thought they were. And I, I encourage you to read through that whole thing in my book. Now, uh, number 51, and we're winding down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to the king, Our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing our knee to your idols. Uh, this one, I remember I preached this all the way back in the 90s, uh, because depending on what translation of the Bible, uh, <clears throat> like the King James in this one actually has it uh, more towards the original Hebrew language. You you read the NIV in this one, and, and what started me on this, I understand, uh, this whole book is like a 28-year journey. <laughs> Of all of these things that I found to not necessarily be true and things that I studied out over the last 28 years, that's why I actually finally had something to say. (laughs) Because it takes takes a lot of years to study, a lot of times for some of this stuff. But we've used this passage as an excuse for unbelief. If you remember the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they're standing before the king, and the king tells everybody, when you hear this music, you bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stand strong. We're not bowing our knee. So then they come before Nebuchadnezzar. They come before the king and he says, if you don't bow, I'm going to throw you in the fire. So the whole point of the passage is whether or not they're thrown into the fire. Okay, that's the context. So then they say this. In the NIV, they say this. If that be so. If what be so? If you throw us in the fire, right? If that be so, our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. That's a pretty strong confession of faith. That's not double-minded right there. That's saying he can and he will. But the NIV says, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow our knee. Now, first question you got to ask is, if he doesn't deliver you from the fire, you ain't going to have a knee, because you're going to be dust, okay? Or you you get thrown in the fire. I mean, how are you going to bow your knee when you're fried? Okay, I mean, you know, a thousand degree heat, you're going to be disintegrated. The King James says it correctly. It actually says, if that be so, if what be so? If you throw us in the fire, our God is able and he will deliver us. But if not, if not what? If you don't throw us in the fire. Not if he doesn't deliver us. That's not the context. But if you don't throw us in the fire, we're not going to bow our knee because then you would at least still have a knee. Okay? And we've used that verse. I've heard preachers for years, you know, God, God is able to deliver you, but just like the three Hebrew children, even if he doesn't, I'm still going to serve him. Well, you know, if you don't get delivered, you're going to be in heaven. So what does it even matter? You know? What do, you, what do you mean you're still going to serve him but, but we take verses like that and actually that would be called double-mindedness and a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways he should think you receive nothing of the lord you can't boldly confess twice god can and will and then turn around and say oh but but even if he doesn't all right, it, it's a it's complete unbelief to the nth degree but we've we've depending on your translation that can completely change how you view that whole passage are you with me I mean, if you're reading, some of the newer translations says, if he, even if he doesn't, which is not correct with the original Hebrew, but if you read, if not, if not what? If you don't throw us in the fire. Well, that anyway, that, that makes a whole lot more sense than sitting around thinking, well, I'm believing God, but, you know, I'm not sure, even if he doesn't. Now, number 53, when you get saved or you come to Jesus, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. How many y'all have heard that one? Man, I, I, I remember every time, we, every time we'd have revival meetings, if someone would come down to the altar and pray a prayer, the evangelist would say, now that you've received Jesus, your names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And then one day I got challenged because I happened to make that statement and someone said to me, you know, uh, where exactly do you get that in the Bible? And then when I begin to study it, what I begin to find is every time Lamb's book of life is actually talked about, it actually says that the names were written for the foundation of the world. Not when they prayed a prayer. And, uh, and it gives this picture. I mean, think of this. Jesus, Jesus sends the 70 out two by two. And they come back rejoicing. They're like, man, demons are subject to us. The sick are being healed. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. How do the names get written in heaven? He hadn't died yet. I mean, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. If he hadn't gone to the cross yet, how do their names get written in heaven? So just maybe God's heart is, according to Paul, telling Timothy that God would have none perish, but all come to repentance. So his heart is he writes everybody's name down because it was written before the foundation of the world. Now, your name getting blotted out is maybe when you breathe your last breath. Or if you really get nitpicky, if you study it, the book of life is actually talking more about something under the law and it was something that the high priest would do with the Urim and the Thummim, and that's a whole other discussion that I do not have time to go into. That's why I really want to encourage you to study it. That, 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 that's why, when, do you realize that when they came back in Nehemiah's day, all the records were destroyed, and so people didn't know if you were actually an Israelite or if you were a Jew or if you're whatever, and so how you got back put in the lineage of being an Israelite is you would come before the high priest, and the high priest would reach in the little pouch, and he would pull out a stone, There was like these different, there was like white and black and different stones that were in his pouch. And if he pulled out a white stone, then you were included and you were actually called then, now one of the children of Israel. If a black stone came out, no, you're a Gentile, you're trying to get in, everything else. That's why you get, you get in the middle of the book of Revelation and it actually says that God, God held out in his hand for Israel, a white stone. It means he's saying, listen, uh, you're in. I'm glad he didn't pull out a black stone. He pulled out a white stone and he was saying, listen, uh, Jesus is the high priest and Jesus pulls out a white stone and says, I'm, I'm going to die for the whole world, not just Jews. All right? my, my heart is to include all, all of humanity, but your name doesn't get written down, written down because you prayed a prayer. It was written down a long time ago. I remember I shared this years ago in East Tawas, Michigan. I was preaching a week-long meeting and the children's pastor got real ticked off at me. So he came up afterwards and he was, I got a bone to pick with you because he had a book of life back in the children's ministry. Whenever one of the children would receive Jesus, they'd go up and write their name in. And he said, man, it's just, just, you know, it's it's powerful. And I said, okay. I said, I'm not going to argue with you. I want you to go to the scriptures yourself and tomorrow come back to me and show me where it says when you accept Jesus your name get written down in heaven. He come back the next day we had lunch together and he said it's not there. I just still don't like it because I like the book. I said but how much more powerful would it be is if you got the name of every child in this region and you wrote it down in the book. And and when they when they pray the prayer or do whatever you walk up and tell them go up there and look and see if you can find your name and they go up and they see their name already written down, that God loved you so much, he already wrote your name down. I just think that's a whole lot more powerful <laughs> that that he actually, according to uh, Jeremiah chapter one, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. He's like, you know what? Man, listen, I always desired you. I've never been against you. I think it's so much more powerful to realize he wrote down my name. A long time ago, it's not just because I... I heard a good sermon. I decided to pray a prayer. (laughs) Hallelujah. That's fun stuff too. All right, now. uh, Yeah, I got to go through this one quick. Myth number 54, Jesus kept the law of Moses perfectly to fulfill it. Uh, This is one I actually, uh, I just shared this on Facebook again. And uh, listen, the scripture says that Jesus came He's, he said in Matthew 5, I did not come to abolish the law. Understand, that was in his flesh. That was in his life. In other words, he's like, I didn't come to abolish the law in my life, but in his death, burial, and resurrection, according to Ephesians chapter 2, he did. Paul actually uses the word abolished in his body. All right completely brought it to an end. That's what the word fulfilled, bring it to an end. He said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And Pastor Andrew's got some fun stuff on that, on, on what, a, what, a, what a rabbi would say. But the part of it that, that, that I want you to see that I, that I believe is also extremely uh, extremely important is Jesus was born under the law, but nowhere does it say he had to keep the law To fulfill the law. Matter of fact, Paul said this to Timothy. The law is not for the righteous, but for the wicked. And we know Jesus wasn't wicked. Jesus was always righteous. So Paul said the law is not even for him. Matter of fact, do you know that Jesus broke the law of Moses quite a bit? He was always breaking the law. He was eating with people he wasn't supposed to eat with. He was touching people he wasn't supposed to touch. He was eating stuff on the days he wasn't supposed to eat days. And I mean, Jesus, I mean, if you study the Gospels, you're like, man, some of the stuff he did was like just to tick off lawkeepers. It really was. I mean, he was a revolutionary. And he, he didn't come just because he was born under the law doesn't mean he came to keep the law. He came to fulfill the law. And I love to put it like this. He, he, he broke the law of Moses many times, but he never broke the law of God. Because the law of God was always love. He any time he broke the law of Moses, it was always because of love for humans and love for humanity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to heal that person on the Sabbath, whether you believe I shouldn't or not, because I care more about them than your rules. Uh, that, that, was, that, that, that really is what the heart of the gospel is. And so uh, we get this idea that in order for him to fulfill it, he had to keep it. And the truth is, he he, he didn't. Now, many of you have heard me say this before. Myth 55, heaven and earth will literally pass away. As in literal heaven and literal earth, just gone. Because didn't Jesus say, not one jot or tittle of the law by any means shall pass away till heaven and earth passes away and all these things be fulfilled. And uh, first time I came here, uh, I think on on a Sunday morning, I actually got up and and I said that one because I said, well, there's a couple problems here. First of all, If you believe it's talking about literal heaven and literal earth, why would literal heaven ever need to pass away? What's wrong with it? Anything wrong with literal heaven? I mean, it's this perfect place where God dwells. I mean, is there a a problem with heaven? And what do you do with more than a dozen verses that say the earth remains forever and the earth is never going to pass away? What do you do do with world without end? Uh, that, That was stuff that Paul said. It's because to a... First century, second temple. Jew, heaven and earth, was talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, uh, Josephus, who was a Roman historian, who was a Jew, who kept meticulous records, he said that that the Jews in the first century, they called the outer court the sea, because that's where the labor of washing was. They called the inner court the land and the earth, and they called the holy of holies the heavens, where God dwelt. That, 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 is, that is why uh, when Jesus said, Not one jot or tittle of the law shall pass away until the temple is destroyed. Because according to Hebrews chapter 9, it says that while the first temple is still standing, the way into the holy place has not yet been made clear. In other words, while the temple was still standing, there were people still offering sacrifices. The Jews were still doing everything. Now, the glory of God wasn't there. The blue smoke wasn't there. There was was no glory left in it. That's why the writer of Hebrews also tells us this. Anyone that's tasted of the grace of God and goes back, goes back to what? Goes back to keeping the law. There is no... Now, if you taste of grace and you go back, there's no more sacrifice for sin. And man, I got saved at least 50 times of that one because they'd pull that verse out and say, you backslider. I mean, if you taste of the goodness of God and you backslide, now there's no place for you. It's like, no, no, it's saying if you started out and you received grace and you went back under law and you tried to take a turtle dove during the feast of, 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 of Pentecost or you tried to take one during the feast of Passover or, or, or tabernacles and on the day of atonement, it wasn't going to do any good because there was no more glory left to it because Jesus made the law obsolete. Completely dealt with it. And so their heaven and their earth passed away almost 40 years after Jesus said that it would. And now every jot and tittle of the law has completely passed away. And now it, it, the law is, is made obsolete. Christ is the end of the law to him who believes. That is why you get to the end of the book of Revelation. Now, watch, stick with me here. Get to the end of the book of Revelation, and it said, I saw coming out of God a new heaven and a new earth. Well, the first thing you got to ask is what was the old heaven and what was the old earth? The old heaven and the old earth was the temple in Jerusalem. So he's saying, what what did I see coming out of God? A new temple. No, you not. No, you not. You are the temple. Matter of fact, you're the new Jerusalem. How do we know that? Because according to Revelation chapter two, to he that overcomes, I'm going to put my name on him in the name of my city. New Jerusalem, smack right on your forehead. The new Jerusalem is not something dropping out of the sky. The new Jerusalem is sitting here right now because there's a new temple, not made with bricks and not made with stone. It's a new temple, now God dwelling in us. Know you not. know you not. You are the temple. And by the way, the book of Revelation also says this in Revelation 21, I saw coming out of God a new heaven and a new earth and there was no more sea. In other words, there was no more outer court. It doesn't mean there's not going to be an ocean someday when heaven comes to earth. Literally, there was no more outer court. Why? Because you don't have to go week after week and year after year to Get cleansed, you got cleansed once and for all by the blood of Jesus. Man, that's ridiculous good news. See, that's when you begin to realize the book of Revelation is talking about a covenant, and it was never, it was hyperbole and metaphor, it was never meant. Apocalyptic language is not literal. All right, it's not not some 1,500 mile wide and 1,500 mile high city dropping out of the sky someday. A 1,500 mile high city is in the stratosphere. What is the purpose of that? What is this, the Jetsons? (laughs) well brother it's a possibility (laughs) help us Jesus now let me let me get here to the last to the the last two is this fun stuff I'm having fun at least Hmm. I encourage you to read myth 61 I don't have time to go into it it's talking about the ten commandments you know what it's actually called the ten commandments is not the ten hanging in the courtroom or the ten we're, were called. The only thing in actually the Bible called the Ten Commandments, you know, includes uh, uh, thou shalt not cook a kid goat in its mother's milk. Not even sure what to do with that one. Three times a year, all your men children should go appear before the Lord, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. That's actually called the Ten Commandments which would not apply to any of us in this room, because first of all, there's no temple in Jerusalem anymore, and who's got the money to take all of the boys and men in their house over to Israel three times a year? Anyway. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven. <laughs> you redeem every firstborn of your sons and flocks. Anyway, that's the one about cooking a goat in its mother's milk. That one is the one that gets me all the time. But anyway, you have to look that one up. A non-alcoholic grape juice is always what the church drank at communion. Listen, do, do you realize that non-alcoholic grape juice wasn't even invented till the late 1800s by a man named Thomas Welch, who uh, Welch's literally uh, who, who was a Methodist elder, and, be, and and because the church was trying to get people to stop getting drunk, they decided. to... It's true. I mean. I mean, what 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 in, the, what in the world do you do with Paul in the Corinthian church rebuking him because he said, "Listen, man, some of you are showing up to the love feast early, eating all the food, drinking all the wine, and getting drunk. That wasn't grape juice." That wasn't. <laughs> Last time I checked, I ain't never got drunk on grape juice. <laughs> all right, here, almost done. Ah. Uh, Myth number 67. You maybe have never heard this one. And uh, I love my daddy, but my daddy, I heard him preach at least two sermons on this in my lifetime. That God had to enlarge hell to fit more human sinners. He had to make hell bigger. And where that, where that comes from is Isaiah, Isaiah 514, where it actually does say that, uh, that hell or the grave, Sheol, was enlarged. But the context of it is this. It's not talking about God saying, listen, man, I made hell for the devil and his messengers. It wasn't made for any humans because that's what I always heard. It wasn't made for any humans, but God had to make it bigger because, you know, obviously in his foreknowledge, he didn't know that. Even though he's all-knowing, no, I mean, you know, he just didn't really know that. So he was going to have to make it bigger. When actually, <laughs> you all are getting a little too used to my humor, aren't you now? It's like, <laughs> listen, that is why in Isaiah the prophet is prophesying and all he's saying is this. He's saying there's a battle coming. He's warning Israel about a war and a battle that's coming that there's going to be such carnage that they're going to have to dig bigger graves. And the word for grave is Sheol and it got translated as hell when it's just in other words all he's saying is you're going to have to dig some bigger bigger pits to drop some more bodies in. It's literally it. Yeah, of course, it's horrible, but he's warning him. He's like, listen, man, there's a war coming, and you know what? It, it's going to get this bad that this is what's going to have to happen. And that actually happened also. Uh, also, it happened in 70 AD because Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, mistranslated hell, 1.3 million Jewish bodies were dumped by the Romans in there and set on fire. And a little side note that's kind of interesting, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Do you know what the lake of fire to a first century Jew was, uh, was actually the Dead Sea? Uh, if you were if you were to say to a first century Jew, well, what's the lake of fire? They'd say, well, the Dead Sea, because the Dead Sea, up until about 400 years ago, it had such a high sulfur content that it would spontaneously combust, and the whole sea would be on fire. That's actually recorded through secular history, not church history. Even when the Persians came, when the Romans came, they said this whole area stinks like sulfur. It's nasty. There was smoke everywhere and everything else. It wasn't, it wasn't a pretty sight at all. And the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, that was mistranslated as hell that Jesus was talking to the Jews about. There's a river still to this day that if you're, if you're there every time it rains, all of those, the ashes of 1.3 million people, death and the grave are cast into Gehenna. And Gehenna then was cast into, or death and and Gehenna was cast into the lake of fire. A river would have flowed down and took all the ashes right out to the Dead Sea. So anyway, there's at least some historical fulfillment. Now, whether there's future fulfillment in that, who knows. Uh, But just know God didn't have to enlarge hell to fit more humans. Now, also, and I, I I got two more. I'll be done. It's my last day. Myth 68, hell is a place that is void of God's presence. Uh, I know we've all heard that. You don't want to go to hell because God's presence isn't there. Scripture and verse. Actually, David in Psalm 139, he said, where can I go from your presence O God? If I ascend to the highest heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're even there. Listen, if hell was a place that was void of God's presence, then hell would have to be a God to itself because there's no place God is not. According to the writer of Hebrews, as well as Paul and Colossians, it says that all things are sustained by the word of his power. He upholds all things. By him, everything was created, and that he's above all, through all, and in all. The truth is there is no place he's not. And regardless of, of which view you believe, about hell, because there's three or four main views taught through church history, every one of them, it would actually, if God's presence was there, it wouldn't harm it. I mean, imagine if if you believe in eternal conscious torment, that people are literally going to be like tortured and fried for all of eternity, wouldn't it actually be more torturous that they could feel God's presence, but they couldn't enjoy it? To me, it would even be more torturous. Or if you believe in annihilationism, that, that, that they just cease to exist, that they literally get burned up in the lake of fire and they die. I mean, God's presence while you're burning, I mean, that would make it even worse. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I, I literally got kicked out of a grace Bible school for quoting Psalm 139 on Facebook, a grace Bible school. They weren't real gracious. But anyway, uh, literally, literally all I said was, if hell is void of God's presence, why did David say this? It's it's ridiculous to think there's any place God is not. That was a really good place for an amen. It's not it's not void of His presence at all. Now, last one, and this one I never put on Facebook. I saved it to the last. God doesn't send anyone to the, God doesn't send anyone to hell. They send themselves. Boy, that's the one we all use. Because whenever we're talking to our friends and family about Jesus and we start talking to them about a loving, good father, they say to us, but what about hell? What, what about God frying people for all of eternity? That doesn't seem too loving. You always say, oh, well, God doesn't do that. You do that. In other words, because you didn't choose to serve him, you send yourself to hell. He doesn't send you to hell. You send yourself because that's us trying to make daddy look better. But the truth is, there's no scripture or verse. There is no verse anywhere in the Bible that says anyone sends themselves anywhere. Matter of fact, Jesus has the keys of death and hell. So no one goes in or out without Jesus. If he has the keys, you can't go in or out without his permission. And if you want to take the book of revelation, literally there's a passage in revelation, I think revelation 14 that says that they would be cast into a fire where they would burn day and night in the presence of God and his angels, which, you know, I don't believe that's literal. It's another discussion, but, but if you believe that, then there's no verse that says you send yourself there. Just doesn't happen. Um, The truth is, the afterlife is up to God, not us. The good news is this. I preach the gospel because according to 1 John 4, I want people to know God's love so that they have no fear to stand before God on judgment day. I preach the gospel so people don't have to even be concerned about it. Because I I wouldn't want to go in and breathe my last breath wondering. I like the idea that I can have one thing I can have a confidence about. I can stand before God and I'm completely loved and accepted. And I don't have to worry about anything in the afterlife. But being absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. That That's good news. That There's a confidence and faith in, in you for that. But what happens to people that, that don't, that's completely up to him. We don't know. And anybody that tells you that they for sure know, they don't know. Nobody, I, I tell people, the older I'm getting, I'm becoming more and more of an agnostic when it comes to the afterlife. I don't know. When I get there, we'll have a discussion, but then, of course, you'd have to believe that you could talk to me after I die. <laughs> which, which, by, which, by the way, is not necromancy, because uh, just because you shed your mortal body doesn't mean you're dead. You're actually more alive than you've ever been. So you're not talking to the dead. You're actually talking to the living. Anyway, highly, that's, that's a fun discussion all by itself because you can't talk to the dead. Who said they're dead? Do you go to a funeral? You're looking at a body that's gone. They're more alive than they've ever been. Right now, they're alive. That's why, that's why at times you still feel them. Why? Because we're compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. Compassed about means they're right here. That, that, that's why you feel encouraged at times. Man, I felt like. My grandmother was right there. she probably was. It shouldn't have to freak you out. Why? she's part of the cloud of witnesses now. and you're compassed about, surrounded. Notice it doesn't say they're floating around. <laughs> you're compassed about that should that should not freak us out it should It should actually give us some peace, strengthen us and let us know so.